What did I say? Very good. Very good. How do you know I didn't change? Because you know me. I'm coming up on a year in the Gospel of Mark, actually. Pretty amazing. Only five more chapters to go. Now that you've found Mark, <clears throat> chapter 10, let's pray. Father in heaven, now we come to your word and pray that you would enable us to see it clearly. I do pray, God, that you would teach us how to feed upon it, how to live upon it, really. So, Father, make it our very meat and drink. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 10, verse 28. Peter said to him, the hymn there is Jesus. Peter said to him, we have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. I wanted to linger in this passage one more Sunday. Last week we began with this uh, passage concerning this rich young man, this rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. We didn't quite get to this piece and I, I thought it was important for us to linger here and to get it uh, because of the fascination or the interest of these verses 29 and 30 where Jesus speaks of what he gives to those who follow, to those who follow him. And I began to think this week of a verse in Deuteronomy in chapter 8 where Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. My mother, bless her, uh, I now realize had, had a kind of a kitchen table conspiracy in the sense that we had napkin holders. And one napkin holder had the Ten Commandments on it. And the other napkin holder had this verse... A man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So ever since I was a child, that verse is, is in my mind, has been in my mind, and is very real because we do feed upon, we do live upon the very word of God in the same way that we, that we need to eat food so that we physically can be sustained and not die. We need the word of God, and we need to learn to feed off it. We need to learn to live uh, off the very word of God. For instance, uh, we live off this verse that says... Uh, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We live off that verse. Each time we sin, we go there and, and we repeat it and we think it through. And it brings life to our souls to know that we've been forgiven. I've been meditating a great deal since our Wednesday night supper on Ephesians in chapter 1. And a wonderful phrase that says, that in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons in accordance with his pleasure and will. I've been living off that since about Thursday afternoon, thinking that it's God's pleasure that I'm his child. This wasn't reluctant. You know, I have friends who I'm reluctant. They're reluctant to be my friend. Uh, they just sort of put up with me. But God, it was his pleasure to predestine me to be adopted. It was his will, his desire that that be the case. And that's really fortified my heart in just the last couple of days. But what today I want to do is to learn to live on verses 29 and 30. I want to, to, to ask myself to apply it to my own life, which is what I've been doing, 
to think through how would these verses feed my soul? How would they cause me to really live if they were really part of me? How would they nourish? How would they nourish my soul? Now, in order to do that, we need to do a couple of things first. One, we need to understand the question that Peter asked Jesus and why he asked it. Secondly, then, we need to see how Jesus understood Peter's statement. It wasn't the question, it was Peter's statement. How Jesus understood it. And then we need to understand Jesus' response to Peter. Once we grab a hold of that, then I think then we can learn what it would mean to live off these verses. Right? Now, you know the context here. I've just given it to you. This man comes to Jesus, this rich man. He seemed to be a young man. Luke calls him a ruler, probably a ruler of the synagogue. This rich young ruler, as we call him, comes to Jesus, asks Jesus what he needs to do, what must he do to inherit eternal life. And you remember that Jesus responds by giving him a list of some of the commandments, those commandments that relate to loving one's neighbor. And the man says astoundingly to us, but the man says to Jesus that he's kept all of these since his youth, since he was a child, since he was a boy. He's kept all these commandments. And so Jesus says, well, one thing you lack, go, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, then you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And you remember that this man had a great struggle and the struggle that part of the struggle that won was his own wealth. He had a great deal of wealth. And so rather than following Jesus, he went back to what he had back to his own wealth. And the scripture says he went away very sad. Jesus then tells the disciples how difficult it is to enter into the kingdom of heaven, most especially for one who is rich. And he uses an illustration about a camel being threaded through the eye of a needle and to tell the disciples about the impossibility it is for someone to save themselves. And so the disciples get that and they say, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, with Man, it is impossible, but with God it's possible. Which is to say that God can affect the salvation of a human being, but a human being, a man, can't affect his own salvation. We know that it takes the righteousness of Christ. Christ needs to walk out in obedience to his Father on our behalf. So Christ walks that out for us. We can't, he does. We know that Christ takes the penalty for our sin. We can't do that, he does. And we also know that God works in us by the Holy Spirit to change our hearts, to enable us to trust in Him. We can't do that, but God can. And so what's impossible for us is possible with God. Now, Peter, after hearing all of that, then says to Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. Now, sadly to me, in the New International Version, the NIV, uh, they leave the translators leave out, of, I think, a helpful word. If you have a New American Standard Edition or a King James Version or one of the others, there's probably, it probably says something to the effect of, Peter began to say to him, which, which tells us that Peter began to say this, but probably didn't quite get it all finished. That Jesus, no doubt graciously, interrupted him. I don't know if your experience with Jesus is the same as mine, but he often interrupts me. Uh, and he doesn't always let me finish. And that's good. Was, many times it's good that I don't uh, finish uh, because I've started badly. And so he just sort of interrupts. Uh, even by my own words, I'm caught short in understanding what's coming out of my mouth. And he says, no, 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 no. And so Peter began. And, and in Peter's beginning, he says, he says, the truth, we've left everything to follow you. When Jesus called them, they left their boats behind, they left their families behind, and they followed Jesus. So what he's saying is essentially true. Now, the question is, why? What's Peter's point, really? 
Now, it could be that Peter's point is, is to say, Jesus, you said it's impossible, but we did it. You said it was impossible for this man to, to do what you asked him to do, but, 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 but we did it. But that doesn't seem to be exactly what Peter's asking, because at least that's not what Jesus responds to. Jesus' response isn't really related to that so much. If it had been, Jesus probably would have said something like, Peter, you don't get the point. Uh, you don't understand that what I told this rich man to do wasn't normative for everybody. I wasn't telling everybody to go sell everything they had necessarily, but I was aiming at his heart to see if he really loved his neighbor as himself, to see if he really loved God. And if he really did love his neighbor as himself, he would have done this joyfully. And if he really did love God, then he would have obeyed me because I'm the good teacher. I am God. And so, so he would have complied. But that was the reason I said that. And, and by the way, Peter, if you're really catching my drift, what you would say here is not, well, we've left everything to follow you, but you would, you would say, praise God, because he enabled us to follow. Praise God, because he did in us that was necessary to enable us to follow you, Jesus. You should be grateful, Peter, not, not telling me how much you've given up to follow me. But that doesn't seem to be Peter's point, because that's certainly not what Jesus answered. Peter's point seems to be a bit more like this. You know, the context here of all of these passages together that Mark is giving us from the lips of Jesus, the context here is the disciples trying to figure out what it's like to live in the kingdom of God as a disciple of Jesus, and they're really into being the greatest. You get this sense that Peter's saying, hey, we left everything to follow you, Jesus. Don't we get something for that? Shouldn't you say, way to go, Peter, good job. Uh, you know, and, and shouldn't we be affirmed for that? But we don't seem to be. I mean, why aren't we getting the treasure of the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus kind of stops him short. Peter, 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 Peter. It's, it's not about what you left when you came to follow me. It's about what you received and what you received to come and follow me. Because, Peter, you have to understand there's ultimately no sacrifice in following me. Because no matter what you've left behind, look and see what you get. Verse 29. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. He says, look, Peter, Peter, Peter. You've left all that behind. But that's nothing in comparison to what you receive in and by following me. Now, this is no prosperity kind of gospel. This is no deal where if you give God $100, he's then obliged to give you 1000 or 10000 That's not his point. When Jesus says you're going to get, receive these things a hundredfold, that's, that means in, in superabundance. In more than you could ever imagine. It's not a literal hundredfold kind of thing. We would say now a million times, just because of cliche uh, inflation. But, um, but that's just kind of his point. He uses a hundredfold. It's more than they could ever imagine. Uh, and so he says, regardless of what you leave behind, remember when you leave behind, you're leaving something behind to follow me. I'm the son of God. There'll be no regrets in following me. 
you should be grateful to be following me and sad for this man because he's missing out on all the great blessing of following me. Now, yes, these things which you suffer are real loss, no doubt, but yet there's no regret in suffering that loss and following me because I'm the very son of God. I'm the blessed one and I'm the blessing one. And so I can take care of you when you follow me. There'll be no, no regret. We get a sense that, 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 that if we suffer the loss of, for instance, our sin, that that would be very good for us. I mean, we, we say, well, you know, if I, if I set aside my anger and follow Jesus, yes, I can expect to be blessed. If I set aside my lust and, and follow after Jesus, I can expect that, that, that he will bless me and that will, be, it will go better for me in so doing that. If I set aside slander and, and speak well of people and I'm following Jesus, uh, there's a certain cost to that. I set that aside, but, but I'm following Jesus and yes, I can expect that there'll be blessing in the context of, of that in, the, in, in my life. But, but Jesus isn't talking about that kind of thing here. He's talking about the loss of mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and fields and homes and children. He's talking about the loss to follow him of those things which aren't inherently sinful, but yet which certain ones of us and maybe all of us from time to time are called to lose, to set aside, to follow him. The disciples certainly knew what Jesus meant because they had done that. They had set aside, they had counted as loss. They had left behind their jobs. They had left behind their families. And now they were following Jesus. Would they ever regret that? Even though what they left behind was of value. No. Not according to Jesus. There are some we know who go into missions. Uh, Leanne, who sets aside, counts as loss. Certain relationships that she could have here in the context of this community. The context of her own family. And for the sake of following after Christ, she sets that aside. Now, email's nice, and phones are nice, and videos are nice, and all those kinds of things, but there's still a setting aside and going and a sacrifice of all that. She came to Jesus and she said, will I ever regret doing this? He'd say, no. Mm-hmm. Parents set aside relationships with their kids when their kids go into missions. And their kids go off and they miss them. Is that painful? Yes. But is there regret? No. Not if you do that in following Jesus. Because he says, I'll satisfy you. I'll satisfy the longings of your heart. I will give to you all that you need in the context of your life. There's no, there's no real regret in that. Some who profess faith in Christ understand this very personally because you know that when you became a Christian and your family isn't that they rejected you. You know that when you became a Christian, it could be your father or your mother or your siblings uh, hold you now at arm's length. The relationship's different. It's not the same way it was before. You're following after Christ. The question is, will you ever regret that? The answer is no. Some know it even more dramatic than that. We have students, people who come to the United States for study and other things and they come to know Christ and they understand now when they go back to their homelands, they're going to be faced with hostility maybe in the context of their own family, their own father, their mothers, their siblings, maybe even their children if they've come here without. 
you understand the rejection that some come who had been Muslim and now are Christian and the difficulties they face. They were Hindu and now Christian and the difficulties they face. They were Jewish and now Christian and the difficulties they now face. They were Buddhist and now Christians and now when they go home, the difficulties that they face. And so we understand that these are very, very real issues in the lives of people. And the question is, will they ever regret that? Will they ever regret the loss of those things for the sake of following Christ? And the answer is no. Jesus says, no, 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 because you're following me, I'll let you regret that. I'll supply all that you need. I'll, su- I'll satisfy all that you need. In fact, I tell you the truth that if, that if you leave brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel, you'll receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields and with them persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Now, the eternal life thing we get, we're okay with that. We understand that in, that in glory we won't have any regrets about whatever we lost on the earth. We know by then, it'll be fine. We'll really see it, we'll really understand it, and when we receive eternal life uh, in, in the life to come, we understand that, that there'll, there'll be no regrets. We'll understand value then. We'll, we'll see that whatever we suffered as loss still is great gain to us in glory. That makes sense to us. In fact, Paul speaks of that, for instance, in Romans and, and uh, Romans in chapter 8, verse 18. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That is to say that, that even though I may be suffering loss now, that, that, that's not to be compared at all to the glory that one day we'll know, that one day we'll see. Uh, he writes to the church in Corinth, for instance, in 2 Corinthians and chapter 4, in verse 17, and he writes this, he says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So in glory, we understand there'll be no regrets. In glory, we understand that, that we'll, under, we'll get it, we'll see it. And we can live off those verses even now, saying, I, I know I'm suffering lost now. I know I'm suffering now for the sake of the gospel. But a day will come when, 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 when the glory that's revealed will be so great. I'll look back and say, yes, it really, really, really was. It really was worth it. There's no question about that at all. But Paul says in this present age, all these things will be true for us. He says, brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields. So what's he mean by that? What's Jesus saying by that? How, how does that all happen? If a person is called to to sacrifice, to leave behind, to suffer loss, that which is very near and dear for the sake of following Christ. How is it that Jesus was, is, is going to satisfy them in that context? And what does it mean that there's going to be a hundredfold of mothers and brothers and fathers and sisters and fields and homes and so forth? Some people are thinking, a hundred mothers? <laughs> How is that a blessing? figurative. We have one extra one that's really powerful. What's Jesus mean? Well, first this, at least. That when we become a Christian, we enter into the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is filled with mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and children. Paul knew this well himself. 
when he was writing to the church in Rome in Romans chapter 16, the, the very obscure little verse at the end of that letter to the church in Rome, he just says hi to a guy named Rufus. And he says, say hi to your mom too, for she was a mother to me. We don't know about Paul's life. We don't, we don't know what he left and all of that. But we do know that even Paul received the nurture of one who to him was like a mom and supplied for him all those motherly affections and kindnesses and counsel. We know that when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says, you have many guardians, but not many fathers, because he saw himself to them as a father to them. They would know Paul as a father to them. And though they may have left behind fathers, because out of their culture becoming Christians may well have been the kiss of death to their family life, Paul said, I will be a father to you. I'll treat you as my own children. He writes to Timothy, my true son in the faith. Mark, who writes this gospel, is referred to by Peter. Peter refers to Mark as my son. Mark knew Peter as a as a father. We don't know what these people left behind, but if they left fathers and mothers, God is supplying them in the context of the of the body of Christ. There are some who are called into, into ministry and serving Christ who never marry and thus never have children, but yet even in the context of the body of Christ, children are supplied because you get to know them and you can minister to them and receive the, the joy of them. In fact, sometimes it's more joy when they're not your own. all of that being supplied in the body of Christ. And I can tell you that if you've left these things, if you've suffered loss of of parents to follow Christ, if you've suffered loss of children to follow Christ, if you've suffered loss of brothers and sisters to follow Christ, and you're feeling that loneliness and, and the great struggle for that, that God has placed you in the context of a body, and he says, now, imbibe, take advantage of all those who are here and we need to understand ourselves to be in a position for each other to provide that for each other the older men need to treat the younger men as fathers and the younger women as um, as fathers to them and the older women need to treat the younger men and the younger women as sons and daughters and peers need to treat them each other as brothers and sisters and we all need to see our responsibility to our children and to parent them and to love them and to help them as they grow up, that's the body of Christ. So that anyone who leaves these, who suffers the loss of these, uh, knows that they are supplied in the context of the body of Christ. But you may say, what about those who get into situations who don't have that opportunity for them? Because there have been many throughout the centuries who have gone places where there are no Christians, where the body of Christ isn't really developed. Our church was always interesting to me uh, when we first started with our first group of 50 or 60 or so, way back when. And it was always odd to me because we didn't have any old people. And we didn't have any teenagers. Okay. And we are growing both of those internally now, <laughs> our teenagers, and uh, we're becoming old. And so now that's less of a problem. But, but there, there, there's something missing in the context of a body like that. And so for a while, what do you do in the context of that where you're in a body that doesn't, isn't fully orbed? It's, 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 it's not a whole family. But what happens if to those who are in missions and they go to uh, other places and there are no other Christians and they suffer the loss of so much, so many in missions through the course of history have gone as husband and wife and the wife has died in the midst of the first months. There's even been situations where 
that missionary would remarry and the second wife would die, and even the third. And children would be born, but you'd die in infancy because of the conditions and the difficulty of the place where they happen to be. Or they would be martyred for their faith. And what about those situations, Jesus? How is it that you're going to make that up? How is it you're going to cause them to be able to leave all this behind and follow you and there be no regret? How are you going to be able to do that when there isn't a plethora of, of, of Christians to be mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and children in the context of their lives? And it's this, I think, that Jesus himself comes and says, I will satisfy you. I will satisfy your very heart. Even in the midst of persecution, I will be there. And I will be the one who will fill you up. And at the end, you will say there is no regret because I came to fellowship. I came to really know, to really know Christ. And he became to me my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters, my home, my field. He became everything to me. No doubt that was true for the Apostle Paul and his his particular position. He understood that well. For instance, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, those great words which we feed off of all the time, Paul writes, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So God's at work for good. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. That is to say that even in the midst of all these difficulties, God is at work at us, and he's conforming us to the image of Christ, his very son. His very son who loves him perfectly. And so through the course of our lives, through the course of Paul's life, even though he suffered the loss of these things, God was at work in him, making him to be increasingly that loving son, to know this caring, loving father. Now, Paul speaks of this rather mysteriously in Second Corinthians in chapter four. We read a bit of this a minute ago. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse sixteen. He says, therefore, after talking about all the things which he suffered, all the losses which he suffered up to his very body, he says, therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. He says, God is at work in me, and he's renewing me. He's restoring me all the time. Even though I've been beaten down, even though I've faced all of these difficulties, still God is at work in me. And if you went up to Paul and said, Paul, do you regret this? Would you take any other kind of life now? Would there any, be anything better for you to do? He'd say, no. And you'd say, Paul, they just beat you the other day. He says, I know. Are you a masochist? No. You haven't eaten in a week and a half. I know. These people hate you. What's going on? He says, Christ is going on. The Lord is going on in my very heart. He's renewing me day by day. And he, he speaks to this, I think, as completely as he does in Philippians in chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, in middle of verse 4, he writes, If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. In other words, Paul's saying, I had everything. I had all the right family situation. I had all the right social situation. I had all the right religious situation. I had all the right academic situation. I had everything imaginable that was right going for me. There wasn't anybody who was better positioned in the community than me. I had everything. But then he says, verse 7, 
But whatever was to my profit, that is all that stuff, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, he suffered the loss of all of that. His family, his community standing, his religious status, he suffered the loss of all of that. God called him away from all of that. Suffered the loss of all of that. But whatever was lost to me, whatever was to my promise, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. That is to say, Christ is my treasure. All of these compared to Christ means all of these are rubbish. Because Christ satisfies me. Paul, do you regret losing your social standing? Paul, do you regret losing your family status? Paul, do you regret losing your religious standing? Paul, do you regret losing your academic, intellectual standing? He'd say no. And you say, well, why not? And he'd say, because I have Christ. Meaning, it's no sacrifice. What I have is so great, there are no regrets. I'd do it again in a heartbeat. He says, I've suffered, I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. He says, I've got it in Christ, all that I need. I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. That is to say, Paul said, I want to take the power that raised Jesus from the dead and I want to know that power. Not that I want to be that powerful to be able to raise people from the dead. That wasn't his point. So, but I want to know that power because that's the power that's necessary in my life to transform me, to change me, to renew me, to make me holy. That's what I want. And he says, I even look forward to fellowshipping, participating in the sufferings of Christ that is going through persecution. And you say, Paul, there's something a little wrong here been stoned one too many times. <laughs> There's something a little wrong here because, because why would you want to do that? To, 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 to go through the, the persecutions, the sufferings of Christ. He said, no, you don't understand. Whatever it takes, whatever can happen that will enable me to know Christ better is to my gain. And, and I might lose a couple of layers of skin. I might miss some meals and some night's sleep. But that's worth it, you see, if it enables me to know Christ because he is my sustainer and he is my all in all. So I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the, righteous, to the resurrection from the dead. And when Paul says somehow, he, he's not uncertain there. He says, I just don't know how this is all going to transpire. I don't know how God's going to make this work, but that's my goal. Whatever it takes, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, whatever it takes, somehow, I don't care. My goal is to know Christ because that's everything. And you see, when, when we suffer loss for the sake of Christ, there's never any regret. God doesn't call us, you see, to a life of self-denial that leads to despair. He calls us to a life that is willing to suffer the loss of everything for our present and eternal joy because he says I can satisfy don't trust anything else don't worry follow me now 
how do I live off of this? How do I take these verses and, and, and sustain my own soul? How do I live from these? Let me give you a list of things for which I have been praying and thinking. Number one, that when I live off these verses, it keeps me away from self-pity completely. You know, self-pity is, is when we make sacrifices that aren't rewarded. And Jesus, we suffer the loss of all these things. And Jesus doesn't come and pat us on the head for suffering the loss of all, all those things. He just blesses us. He sustains us. He helps us. So much so that the glory moves from my self-sacrifice to his generous gift. And so I no longer concentrate on what I've sacrificed, but I begin to see the blessing of what he's given to me. And my eyes are opened and I worship him. That he receives the glory for his giving. I don't receive the glory for my sacrifice. There's no self-pity in this. Secondly, this I never should think that suffering is really unusual. Because even in the midst of suffering, the Lord says to us, whatever you lose in the midst of that painful difficulty, whatever you lose, I will supply. So Peter writes that even though we go through fiery trials, our faith increases and we rejoice in that. Jesus said if they persecute you, Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because they did that to the prophets. How does that help? It says because you're identifying with me and that will ultimately bring you more joy than identifying with anyone or any other thing. It keeps me from complaining. Do you ever wonder why God was, got so angry at the Israelites when they complained when they were going through the wilderness? See, I think they complained about reasonable things. I mean, he led them to a place where their backs were right up against the Red Sea and their enemies were coming towards them. I think I'd file a petition. He took them to a place there was no food. He took them to a place where there was no water. I think I'd register a grievance. But you see, God got angry with them when they complained like that. Why? Because when they were complaining, they were intimating that there must be a being in the universe who's wiser, more powerful, more caring, more loving than God. And if only that being were their God, they wouldn't be in the predicament they find themselves. He says, no, 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 no. When you follow me, I will bless you. I will take care of all that. Even though I'll lead you into difficult things, even though there'll be sufferings, even though there'll be persecutions, I will inwardly renew you in such a way that you'll look at that and you would say, I would rather that suffering to know Christ than to not know Christ. When my children were little, I've told you this before, we would walk around like at a park or in shopping malls and I would look down at them and I would say, smile, you're making me look bad. I mean, people are going to look at you and think he's not very much fun to be with. They would then say, Dad, you're not. <laughs> but, but we have to be careful in the context of walking with Christ because he is good to be with. And when we're complaining, we give the impression that he's not. He says, no, trust me, I'm renewing you. I'll supply. You won't suffer the loss of anything that you will ultimately regret. You don't have to screw up your courage and 
force yourself to give up because he says, I will bless you as you walk with me. I mustn't complain. It helps me pray. It helps me pray for missionaries. It will help me pray for Leanne as she goes. Because I always pray for comfort, and I'm sure she wants me to. And that things will go well. But I mustn't shy away, and we mustn't shy away from praying that God would be, in whatever circumstance these folks find themselves, that God would be for them precisely what they need, and that he would supply in such a way that regardless of the loss they suffer, they would be able to turn to, to, to us in the context of the great cloud of witnesses and say, it was worth it that Jesus satisfied that I would rather suffer the loss of what I've suffered than miss knowing him the way that I do. And we need to pray that Christ makes himself so real in the lives of people, in our lives, that that would be our very testimony as well. I must make certain in the course of my own life that I never fear the loss of anything for the sake of following Christ. I mustn't worry, I mustn't fear what I may lose. I mustn't worry or fear what I, what I may have to give up in order to follow him. That shouldn't be a fear for me. That shouldn't be my anxiety. I shouldn't worry about that. I should trust him that he will satisfy at every turn. That when I meet him, in fact, even before then, day in and day out, it should be the very testimony of my heart that Christ is sufficient to satisfy my every need. I mean, think of it. If you're married and you're a wife and your husband comes to you and all day, all evening long, all he does is tell you how much he's sacrificed for you and how painful that was. Wouldn't you as a wife go, I'm sorry? Wouldn't you want to think, well, I know wives. You'd say, but aren't I worth it? You see? And if he wanted to walk again, he'd say, Yes. See, that's what it is in following Christ. Isn't he worth it? But, but, but Jesus, I, I've suffered the loss. I've, I've, I've sacrificed everything to follow you. Jesus, was it that bad following me? No, oh, Jesus. Isn't that? It's not bad at all. Because you're the very Son of God. And I trust that you will be sufficient in everything in my life kingdom of God is like a treasure buried in a field. And a man finds it, he digs it up, but then he hides it again. And in his joy, he goes and he suffers the loss of all things. He, he sells everything he owns to come and buy that field. Why? Because there's a treasure in that field. Does he think about what he should do? No. Why? Because there's a treasure in that field. Would he ever regret selling all that he has and buying that field? No. Why? Because there's a treasure in that field. Christ is that treasure. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please, I pray, for me and for all of us, nourish us on these verses. Feed us, strengthen us, encourage us. Take away our complaining. Take away our self-pity. Take away our fear. Give us courage to follow you 
even if it means suffering the loss of perhaps that which we think we could never part with. Enable us, Father, to walk with you to be a real disciple of Jesus. And so, Jesus, I pray that true to your word, you would satisfy our very hearts and that we would be able to say day in and day out that you are our all in all, that you are everything that we need, that you satisfy our very souls. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you that there will be elders available to pray. Please take advantage of that. They will be in the office area. The response to the benediction is this. Christ is my treasure. Hallelujah. Now when you say that, what you're saying is that you realize that he's worth it all. That there is nothing in your life more valuable than Christ himself. Not even your life. And then when you say hallelujah, you're just saying, yes sir. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the Lord bless you. And may he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all God's people said, Christ is my treasure. Hallelujah.